here we are at Pod and Market. I can't tell you how excited I am to introduce today's guest. This episode has been almost two years in the making. Uh, I first met Marcy when I began this podcast, uh, back when we shared the same studio at Newark.fm on Broad Street. For such a long time, we've been trying to appear on each other's shows, and it became a bit of a running game of tag. Um, but finally, she's here, um, and I, I'm so excited. Uh, now, I feel like Marcy needs no introduction, but to leave no doubt about how awesome a person she is, I'll give you a little bit of background on her. Marcy Pina is the principal and founder of Force and Media Group, which she founded in 2005 and is a public relations, marketing, and social media firm. She is the executive director of the Newark Arts Council and is also the executive director of Newark Riverfront Revival, a nonprofit organization that designs programming around Riverfront Park and advocates for development uh, and environmental work around the Passaic River. She also produces podcasts for iHeartRadio and is the music curator for the Newark Museum of Art. Uh, most importantly for me and the show, uh, Marcy is a DJ and a radio host producing a weekly radio show called Forza, which we'll get into later in the pod, uh, which you can find online and I'm going to provide a link to in the show notes. Um, just to give a quick uh, idea of what Forza is, Forza explores music of Africa and the diaspora and, to quote, raises the frequency of our world through the arts and provides a platform for voices and conversations that promote cultural awareness and understanding. Uh, now that's aside, uh, so... My first question to Marcy is, how are you? Hi, <laughs> I'm doing so good. I'm so happy that we're finally making this happen. I have been a fan of Pot and Market, and you know I'm a fan of you, Manny, oh. and all that you do. Like You're such a strong advocate for the city and just an all-around intelligent and creative and thoughtful guy who makes fantastic drinks. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I'm really excited, and thanks so much for having me. Um, I do want to just make one note that yeah. you said I was the executive director of Newark Arts Council and I'm the president of the oh, board. Oh, president. I'm sorry. President of the board. I know. And this is what happens when I write too quickly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I did mean to. I, I knew that. I just wrote um, way too quickly. Um, but I will fix that for the online copy. But thank you for pointing that out. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's um, we're in the middle of the end of the beginning of the pandemic, right? <laughs> um, so how's that been for you? Wow, it has been insane. I mean, <laughs> who could have predicted that this is where we were going to be? I remember raising my glass at the end of 2019, going into 2020 and saying, this is going to be my best year yet. And Everybody seemed to be saying the same thing that 2020 was like going to be the year that it was just going to, you know, everything was just going to be on our side. And then boom, um, you know, here we are. And we have all, one thing's for sure, um, you know, definitely experienced a radical shift in the way that we live, in the way that we work, in the way that we communicate, in the way that we recreate. And certainly, probably most profoundly in the ways in which we even interact with ourselves, because like, when was the last time that you yeah. were forced to stay in your house? So um, it, it's been really quite evolutionary for, for me personally. Um, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, it's been, it's been like, wow, you know, some things, um, some great things have happened. Um, you know, new opportunities, uh, being able to pivot and find creative new ways to work with technology and 
more um, opportunities to collaborate with great people. Uh, that's been really positive and new roles have come in my direction and, and that's been really cool. But like everybody else, I've also experienced loss. And so that's been, you know, difficult. So, um, you know, you take the good with the bad. I don't think anybody is going to be walking away from this, you know, beginning of the roaring 20s um, <laughs> unscathed. I think we've all in some way, shape or form suffered loss, whether it was financial loss or uh, loss of a loved one, which, you know, was my case and um, or just just loss in general, just loss of a way of life, you know, and, and really mourning sort of the way things were. I think I think we all collectively are sharing in that that grief. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you said the word pivot. I feel like that should be should have been the candidate for the word of the year for 2020. <laughs> I think, you know, people kept saying social distancing is going to be the word of the year or, you know, mask wearing or Zoom call. But like, honestly, pivot, because that's all we've been doing. Yeah. Really, like every every aspect of my life. I mean, from this podcast to my professional work to... Uh, different boards that I'm on, um, you know, everything. Just nothing has been untouched by this. And I can only imagine you're even, you know, you're much more busy than I am. And I can only imagine the changes that have gone on with your own show to Mm -hmm. the Newark Arts Council, to the Riverfront Revival, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The Museum of Art. I mean, like, we have a beautiful museum in this town. And it's, I mean, it's reopened, um, but it was closed for a good six months to the public. Yeah, it's actually still closed. It will be open and yeah, it's still closed. It's really just mainly virtual programming at this point and will be reopening in June of, um, of 2021 so so yeah yeah, oh man i thought they had done a soft reopening i guess they didn't because i felt so bad a previous guest of mine uh wolfgang who you know um he you know he no joke he was the uh last no the second to last interview i did before the crisis hit and he was on to talk about his opening in a month (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. an opening Mm -hmm. that never happened right right uh, right. And I feel so bad for him, I, like because it was such a. I mean, it is still going up, but it's it's such a cool project to get delayed um, for so long. But yeah, it's just yeah, everything has 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 changed so much. Um, so let's talk about like Forza. Um, you know, on that note, <laughs> like let's let's talk about your show. Um, can you sort of introduce the listeners to, if they are not listening to it already, what Forza is all about, how you got into it, how it began the story yeah so it's uh it's an interesting story um i guess (laughs) i mean music is to me the foundation of creation and you know when people think of music they're thinking of you know like a guitar piano or drums um that's one form of music but music for me is just sound it's it's all of the harmonious or disharmonious sounds that we hear and so when you think about sort of the first elements of creation um, sound is at the very root of who we are Um, and music is one of those few things that just has an ability to immediately transport you to a place space time and if you think about it i think the reason why or at least this is my theory that uh, we, you know, as we're gestating, as we, you know, we're just, um, you know, a little egg, a little fertilized egg in the womb of our mm. mothers. Um, 
we are, you know, sound is sort of the first thing. And then as we develop, we hear our mother's heartbeat and then we hear a bunch of other sounds and then we hear our very own heartbeat, which is our internal sort of timekeeping system, um, our rhythm system, our beat system. And so we're actually like gestating in this polyrhythmic um, atmosphere. And so for me, that's sort of like the basis of what force is about, right? It's about like sort of this universal language of music that no matter where you are, what language you speak, when you hear a beat or you hear a melody that sounds good, you have you don't have to know what they're saying. You don't have to know the culture. You don't have to even have ever heard that style of music before. But if it's good music, you just kind of rock with it. And so um, music has really always been a part of my life. My mother's a musician. Uh, I have a lot of musicians in my family. And I grew up as a singer. Um, I grew up, you know, I actually used to sing in a Portuguese wedding band. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, at this place in New Bedford, Massachusetts called Club Recorações. <laughs> so just uh, just for context, uh, where Marcy grew up, New Bedford, is two things about it. So first, it's actually 15 minutes from where I went to high school. So we, 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 we bonded over this before. Um, but it's also, um, people, like, don't understand this about, like, like outside of Newark, especially that like there's this massive Portuguese community mm-hmm. in, yeah. uh, and not just Portuguese. Portuguese is also, I mean, Brazilians are mostly in Framingham, but there's some there, and a lot of Cape Verdeans as well. Um, in the Fall River, New Bedford, Providence kind of arc, as I like to call it. Um, and it's just funny to think that you say, isn't that hilarious? Band. Yeah, and I was like 14, 15. I was like in high school and uh, they needed they needed somebody and so I auditioned and I, I I became the backup person when the lead singer was not available so oh, I wow. would sing. Yeah, this really cool band and it was so much fun. So, you know, music has always been with me. It's always it's really been like my sort of most faithful companion, my constant companion in my life and you know, as I became, um, you know, an adult and I moved to New York, I was looking for a way to sort of bring together all these different ideas that I had around like social justice and, you know, politics and history. And it was actually, believe it or not, I was ma- I was at Rutgers University and I was majoring in music and Latin American studies because my family is Cape Verdean and Uh, Cape Verde are 10 islands off of the coast of West Africa that were colonized by the Portuguese. And I really was looking at like a a framework to explain Cape Verdean culture. And I was thinking about grad school. And it was really hard to just be an Africana studies major and explain Capvid because Cape Verdean culture and history is a Creole culture. And so, you know, it's also a culture that was born out of the system of slavery and colonization. And so it was really hard to use the framework of just Africana studies from an anthropological perspective to, you know, to unpack all of that. So I decided to major in Latin American studies and music. And I knew that I wanted to do something along those lines. But I was taking this class, and I know this is a long-winded answer. No, 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 this is what I want. Please, keep keep going for 20 minutes. I'm listening. (laughs) So I was taking this class, and the class was actually um, the roots of African-American music. And I read this book called Blues People by Leroy Jones. Now, mind you, I live in Newark, right? And I'm reading this book, and I'm like, this is it. This is what I want to do. 
this is like this is an anthropological anthropological look at music within a culture and this is exactly what i want to do that book completely changed my life mm. when i ever realized that leroy jones was a miri baraka senior mm. i it was just like a light bulb went off and i was like this is it and literally amiri baraka changed my life and for me to find out that that actually that person was from the city that i was from that you know i already knew family members i knew you know our mayor ras baraka who at the time was not even a council person mm. um and i knew by wilson who's a cousin and i knew some other family members so it was really like okay i'm in the right place this is like everything is working out and so that was when it first became clear to me that there was a whole career that you could create for yourself where you were literally looking at what the purpose of music is in a culture and so I did my senior thesis on um I was looking at sort of the the uh evolution of Brazilian music in Salvador da Bahia and I was mm. looking at um samba and candomblé and tracing that from Yoruba roots and uh it, it, I came upon ethnomusicology and I was like yeah this is it this is what I want to do and so for there from there I went to grad school and it just sort of evolved from there and you know i started really looking at hip hop i was like really really interested because that was sort of like the younger version of what had happened during the revolutionary movements that took place in africa in the 60s and 70s and initially i was really looking at cape verdean independence and how music had played such an important role in that um in that time because at the time Cape Verde got its independence in 1974 and at the time the country was almost 80% illiterate. Mm. So uh because of that music was the way in which the revolutionary messages were spread from island to island and in fact when the revolution was won it was the the signal was there was going to be a song played on the radio yep. and that would be how people knew. So I just found that fascinating and it really like took me on this journey of how music moves political and social movements and when i looked at sort of the modern um parallel to that i just kept coming back to hip hop and i from there i just started meeting like all these people in new york and new jersey from all different cultures i mean everything from like india to like iran to russia to you know peru chile of course you know all the different african nations senegal cabvid south africa etc and then people that were doing stuff in like portugal and you know all throughout and i was so enthralled at the way in which hip hop was this just universal language at the energy of this music that was created in the United States and that really spoke to the sort of um unseen population of people and the struggles that were happening within, you know, communities that were that were poor that were like the community that I grew up in. I was really struck by how that message had translated around the world and and what it meant to people, like what it could mean to a kid in Japan. Mm. And that was kind of like the basis of how it all started for me and then from there it just I just I don't know, it just there's something about music from different cultures i would always be like hmm yeah i don't know if i'm going to really like dig this music and like i would fall in love every single time and 
once I got to the point where I, um, you know, this is sort of a detour. My other, like, through all of this was happening, I was always, a, like, a party promoter. I got my career started as a party promoter in New York City. And um, that was always, like, kind of, like, my side hustle on the side when I had, you know, a, a day job. And, um, you know, from there, it was like I just started to uh, think about different ways to promote the events that I was working on. And I was working on a Cape Verdean show and I went to a radio station and it was called the Caribbean zone. It was in East orange. And I had the artist with me and we were there to promote. And the guy who runs the station was like, I like your voice. Like, have you ever considered having a radio show? (laughs) And I was like, sure. And then from there, you know, I, I started my forces show. and, And the whole point was, I wanted to really show how we have so much more in common than people realize and that you can actually show that through music by, cha- you know, just basically blending different rhythms and, and showing like sort of where the the common origins of humanity are. And um, particularly in the case of African and African diaspora music, it's really easy to see the connection. Yeah, you know, what's funny is I was about to ask you about how how do you start a show because um and, and you got into it. it it's it i find the hardest part about a show is um, at least starting one is taking all that love you have for something which you just eloquently described in the last few minutes but overcoming that hurdle of wanting to put it out there of wanting to construct something right Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm I, you. Your story is very similar to mine, right? It was someone else had to tell you to mm-hmm. do that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and I'm kind of wondering, like, what are your thoughts? Like, how important are other people to engaging in that kind of work and trying to have that conversation? Hmm. You know, I think there's kind of like two two types of uh, trajectories that you can have, right? When it comes to creative work um one is you just have like this burning idea and you know what you want and you're like just doggedly going after it you're like okay i'm gonna be an actor and i am just like gonna do everything i can to be an actor and then there's the other kind of person who has a passion around a particular topic idea you know creative uh creative um endeavor but isn't necessarily fully seeing the way that that like how that could manifest itself and I think that yes this is where other people become important and other people are always important on your journey because even when you know what you want and you're like okay I want to do this I want to do this sometimes you have those moments of doubt or moments where you really just need you know uh, uh, somebody to help pick you up or somebody to give you encouragement or even somebody to just introduce you to somebody else But in my case, there was never a doubt in my mind that I wanted a career in music, that I wanted a career in the arts. I always knew that. I just didn't know what that was going to look like. Initially, it was always like, oh, I want to just be making music. Like, I want to be on stage. I want to be in the front. And as time evolved and I became really interested in sort of some of these intellectual ideas or looking at things from... Um, the perspective of how do I contribute to my community in a way that's more grassroots. Um, It it was, it it just kind of unfolded. And I think sometimes people can draw out things that you don't necessarily see in yourself 
or can figure out a way in which that you can make a contribution that you may not have considered. Like I didn't, up until that point, I had never thought about a radio show. I had dreamed about like television or film, but I had never dreamed about a radio show. And I don't even know why I didn't, but I, I, I didn't. And the minute that this guy, shout out to him, his name is Cosmo. Um, so the minute that Cosmo was like, you have this great voice, why don't you do radio? It was like an aha moment because it wasn't the first time that people had told me that they really liked the sound of my voice. So it was like, oh, right. Like this is a lane and this brings together everything that I love in a way in which I can share it with the world and make a positive contribution and have the freedom to do that that doesn't sort of exist and so many of the restrictions that often come along with the type of career that I initially thought that I wanted, which was very much, you know, when you have a, a career where you're a major artist, you you lose a lot of freedom and you lose a lot of ability to, to uh, sort of be who you are and be yourself. And by somebody else recognizing something in me that I hadn't seen, it provided me with almost like a template to and a launch pad really to do other things and it just evolved from there so yeah people other people were definitely pivotal pivotal <laughs> pivotal <laughs> pivotable the word pivotable. of 2020 yeah right exactly <laughs> are you pivotable enough um <laughs> that's a good question oh, god. yeah oh actually yeah oh my god that is i mean that's the funny thing because like that's with any art though right mm -hmm. um joking about pivoting like a lot of art is it's just forcing you to pivot yes. when you need to um like this podcast a good example i'm thinking of my own origin story with this podcast and listening to yours i'm thinking i also had someone who at a party of a mutual friend of ours he throws a christmas party with his wife and um i was up there mm -hmm. and I was just kind of ranting about uh, a political issue mm -hmm. in the city. And the person's like, well, why don't you do a podcast about that? <laughs> it's like, wait, are you mm -hmm. serious? And they're like, well, there's this place called Newark.fm or this thing. You should check it out, whatever. And like, and that snowballed right into this show. And the funny thing is I initially wanted this show to be a political discussions podcast for Newark, something I don't think we have. Mm -hmm. We don't have that forum to discuss issues honestly and openly with a yeah. sense of like what does this all mean and a sort of right. analysis of that and like yep. I do, we still do that to an extent on the show but like i had to pivot it i had to change it um mm -hmm. you know into more of an interview podcast which i'm totally fine with because that still gets at a lot of interesting stuff about this city mm -hmm. um and i'm kind of wondering like do you have you had to like pivot on your own show have you had to like change stuff about it just to respond to either audience response or your own you know intellectual ambition mm -hmm. with the show i'm just kind of interested like how does it, how does the show evolve over the years because yours has been around for much longer than mine yeah i mean the show has definitely over the years changed my first sort of iteration of the show it was called um the movement cape verdean vibes and it was <laughs> yeah it was more so focused on yeah. cape verdean music and what i would do i was on the station as i said caribbean zone where Caribbean zone. I was the only non-Caribbean person. I was also the only woman. 
uh, on the station. And it was an actual on the dial radio station. And they loved the fact that I was different. You know, I mm. wasn't I wasn't from like Trinidad or Jamaica or Antigua or wherever. Um, but I still had this sort of like island culture that really blended very well with Caribbean music. So in that iteration, I would play probably about like 80% Cape Verdean music, but I would every single week I would um, mix in a country. So say one week it would be the Dominican Republic, say the next week it would be Portugal, say the next week it would be, I don't know, Zimbabwe. And I would take the time to sort of show the connections between the two. And it was really about promoting Cape Verdean artists and Cape Verdean culture. And that was great. You know, that was really great. And I, I had a longstanding partnership with Creole Radio, which is a radio station that's based in Cub Verde. So it was important for me to do that because I was really catering to to both audiences. But then, of course, you know, once I switched over to Newark.fm, I had to really rethink things and think, okay, I'm now going to have this station that is not just a Caribbean radio station where people are a little bit more familiar with like an international type of music. Um, but I'm now going to be on a station that's really for the city of Newark and that's looking at Newark as sort of like the, you know, what's happening in the city? What is the, what is the cultural landscape of the city? And so, you know, also in addition to that, my personal sort of music tastes, um, became I, I really wanted to bring that into the show as opposed to just showing Cape Verdean music because I don't only listen to Cape Verdean music I listen to a ton of music and I couldn't help but you know constantly go back to like wait so if I play like this soca song and then I go to Funana which is a Cape Verdean music it's like effortless effortless and I can then go to merengue and it's effortless like there's you, you don't even have to skip a beat it literally, you could blend them together. And I just kind of kept thinking about all of that. And I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to now make this about all of these cultures. And I'm just going to blend the whole thing in. And then the guests that I'll have on the show will reflect that. And so that was kind of how, you know, for, the show Forza really evolved into what, what it is. And now with the pandemic and, you know, what's been the biggest change has not been going into the studio is you know doing the show at home and and being my own sound engineer and broadcasting live from home <laughs> and yeah and all of those things and you know what's funny is that <laughs> it actually expanded my vision of the show because up until I don't know why like I I've never thought of this but there would be so many people that I want to interview like I have a, a really great friend of mine named Juan Love, who's a, a hip-hop artist who's based in Ghana. And he's a really, really interesting character. He's one half of this group called the, the Fucking Boys. And um, <laughs> they're all, yeah, they're hilarious. They're all about political satire. But he himself, Juan Love, is half Romanian and half um, and half Ghanaian. And has this That's really interesting... Oh my God! I, yeah. I feel I feel like the Cold War has something to do with that mix. <laughs> when, you know what? You're right. You're right because his dad was going to school in Romania, in, probably right. Exactly, yep, yep. and that's yep. how he met his mom, and then they moved back to Ghana. So, so he 
I, yeah. you, I can't tell you how many half Russian, half Cubans I know at heart, like from my, <laughs> from my undergrad experience. Cause these people, yes. they were like, they were sent to, to Cuba, like these right. academics and, or vice versa. These Cubans would go to Moscow right. and their kids would end up being like very interesting characters, very smart. And sometimes they would leave for America. Like it's just these connections mm-hmm. that you would never think would happen because of political, you know, connections and because of cultural connections, they, they, mm-hmm. they blossom. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's funny that like, you know, the first thing that came to mind, I think, Oh, Romania and Ghana, what do they have in common? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Right. Cause yeah. you, you wouldn't necessarily like picture that as a mashup. And even what's even more interesting, like in the case of, of him particularly is when you listen to his music, he, you know, he started out more like in this hip hop style and then, over the years he evolved and then he started mixing like traditional sounds and instrumentation from Romania Mm. with traditional sounds and instrumentation of Ghana, but with a modern twist to it. And you know what? It went together perfectly. Like it just, you would never like, you would never think that these cultures are not like extremely close to one another. It just, worked. Okay. Um, Do you want two things to blow your mind? Okay. So first, um, or, now, I might get hit by a Moldovan, but um, <laughs> there was a Romanian language, arguably Moldovan, arguably, mm-hmm. um, song that was number one in the U.S. in 2005. Oh, wow. Do you know which one it was? It's going to blow your mind. You're like, oh, oh my no, God. No, tell me. Tell me. I it, need to it know. It was called Dragostaya Dinte. It was also known as the Numa Numa song. Do you remember? Yeah, you remember Numa Numa? Yeah, I can't can't say. Yeah, that song is Romanian. Oh, it's Moldovan. I never would have known that. So Moldovan, arguably, is uh, this is like where you get into dialect language debates, but um, Mm -hmm. they're related languages. And here's another crazy thing: Romanian is Mm. the same language family as Portuguese. Wow. Yes. Somehow, I'm not surprised though. And if you listen to Romanian, it sounds like a Slavic Portuguese. It's really weird. I really recommend it. Like it, you, you listen to it and you're like, this sounds like someone like just kind of like doing babble version of Portuguese. It's really wow. funny. Um, I love, see, this is why languages <laughs> are like so fascinating to me because again, it's like you think things are far away from each other and then you realize that they're actually not. And like people moved. Like it's not like people just stayed in one place. Oh, yeah. Like people actually moved. So that's, yeah, that's like amazing, amazing. So what I realized was, okay, yeah, I've been wanting Juan Love to come on my show for the last two years, and I don't have to wait for him to be in the United States like I previously had thought. <laughs> yep. In my mind, for some reason, there was like this block. Like if I was going to interview somebody, they had to come to the studio. Like I had to do it in person because in person is better. It was like in my mind, it was like, oh, I hate doing, you know, like telephone interviews and blah, 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 blah. But like all of that went out of the window once this pandemic and, you know, subsequent quarantine hit. And it was like, wow, this is actually great. I can have people from anywhere and everywhere on my show. And it's great. Like if there's any glitches in the audio, it's like not that big of a deal anymore. Mm. It's just par for the course. Yeah. I mean, like you see it on TV, too. Like I watch the PBS NewsHour every night and they've just like they said, fuck it. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and every even judy woodruff is reporting from like this little library in her house and it's just like you know and i'm like i don't bat an eye i'm like yeah this is like this is what we do right this is mm-hmm. how we um how we have to do things now and frankly probably how we we're going to continue doing things mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. for the rest until the next 
paradigm shift occurs, right? Right. Um, right. Who knows when that is, but uh, you know, I could I could see it continuing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mind. I mean, like, there's like I'm able to have this conversation with you. Like, part of the reason why we kept pushing it off is my studio space was 9 a.m. Not 9 a.m. Mm-hmm. Sorry, 10 a.m. 10 a.m. on a Saturday. I think mm-hmm. yours was like a Thursday night. I can't Tuesday. Tuesday. Tuesday night. Tuesday night. Yep. And like we were, you know, that's two of our hours of free time that are taken up by that, right? Mm-hmm. And it was always hard mm-hmm. to, to meet up. I mean, we did stuff together still. Like mm-hmm. I, I've been on your Riverfront tour, which I highly recommend. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got a, got sunburned on that. I don't know if you remember. <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> I always try to tell people wear a hat and bring your sunscreen because it's real out there. You it don't is realize so it real. It's, yeah. You're on the water and yeah. it's breezy. So you don't realize that you, the sun is literally beating on you. <laughs> well, it's funny because I sailed for years at Tabor. Mm-hmm. And you think I would know better. But I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then again, when That's I sa- when I sailed, I never wore shorts. He always wore long pants for some reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, um, it, a lot of things have changed, and and it's it's amazing to hear that like you've also adapted to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just want to just talk about like um, one of the coolest things that you're doing right now. The most recent, at least, is your music curation mm-hmm. of the New York Museum of Art. And what's funny enough is. Uh, I had Wolfgang Gill, who I mentioned a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. on this podcast, and his uh, piece, uh, the installation that he was doing in the Newark Museum, was something that was defined by sound. And mm-hmm. I'm looking at your title, Music Curator, I'm also thinking this is incorporating sound into fine art, which is usually traditionally mm-hmm. defined as studio art, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering, like, what does that mean to be a music curator for a place <laughs> that, like, is that primuses the, the physical? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I was quite surprised when the museum offered me this position. It wasn't like something that was posted and that I applied for. Again, like most things in my life, it kind of just happens. It just sort of fell in my lap and it was a very natural evolution into uh, this particular position. I started working with the museum. Actually, <laughs> the, I, when um, Catherine Wilson first, when she first came onto the museum, I first, I can't remember how we first met actually, but I met Linda Harrison. I met her at an event that Nork Arts had. And, you know, I was really interested to see sort of what was happening at the museum and how things were changing at the museum. And, you know, I've always felt like the museum is this great asset to the city. It has a world-class, you know, collection. Um, you have the Ballantine House, which has so much rich history. And you're like, you feel like you're transported to another time. And you can imagine, you know, Nork uh, in, in its heyday of the great breweries and, you know, what that felt like when you're there. Um, but I think that a lot of people are detached from or um not uh you know not really really taking advantage of this incredible amenity that we have right in our city so that was something that was curious to me like why is that why are there not more people involved and you know as the museum has changed over the last few years i just started meeting more and more people and then i met um sylvia Uh, Fantoni, who is relatively new to the museum, and Catherine, and we just started talking, and I was like, hey, guys, you know, would you be interested in doing 
a Forza style event, like something sort of similar to the Brooklyn Museum and, and what they do with their first Saturdays. I just felt like we, the museum, I say we, but the museum should, should do something that invites people in and what better way to invite Newarkers into the museum than giving them a reason to come and dance and have fun and listen to music and party. I mean, that's a great <laughs> way, you know, to kind of expose a larger group of people to the museum. And, you know, at the time they were like, yeah, okay, this sounds really great. You know, like we'll keep talking. And then, you know, the pandemic hit and that was like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> the museum has shut down and that's not going to work anymore. And then the Newark Arts Festival uh, came about and I produced it last year. And we had this idea, actually Lauren Craig, who's the director of marketing and artistic initiatives for the Newark Arts Council. She had this idea of a virtual gallery and we thought, wow, this would be really great if this was modeled after the Newark Museum. And we, we spoke to the museum and Wolfgang Gill, who you mentioned, you know, he was in the process of, uh, he had just finished his installation. And of course, it, people were not going to be able to come in person and consume it anymore and to, you know, to really partake in it. And we approached Wolfgang about creating this virtual gallery, which he did. And at that point, I think that was when the museum really started thinking about virtual programming in a different kind of way and performing arts became an important component of that because how do you show people art like how do you make that fun for somebody like watching an exhibit from home mm -hmm. like that's i mean it's you need a little bit more than that you know <laughs> um you do you really do because you're not able to eat they weren't even able yeah. to be in the building so it wasn't even like they could do like a virtual tour they were completely shut out of the building um, due to the way in which their um, institution was navigating the COVID restrictions. So from there, it just kind of evolved. And, you know, I did a couple of FORSA events with them where we looked at different language groups. Um, and like we did an English version, we did a French, we did a Portuguese, we did a Spanish. And from there, they just were like, hey, you know, you're doing all this stuff. I was, you know, giving them a lot of sort of contacts and connections with people that could do music performances and dance performances and thinking of what kind of sonic ideas they could bring to the table. And they just said, hey, would you be interested in being the music curator for the museum? Like, this is not something we've ever done before. This is uncharted territory. But this seems like it's an important component to the way in which art is being um, not just created, but also like consumes, like how people are starting, the type of experience that people want to have moving forward. And I think if this pandemic, one of the things that this pandemic has taught us is that experiences, like actual experiences, are really precious to us. And if you want to have a multi-layered artistic experience, one of those components is sound. So that was kind of how it came about. And it's been a few months since I've been in this role and we've been having a lot of fun with it. And I'm just like so excited to see what kind of cool things we'll be able to create as this intersection of music and art and visual arts and performing arts and sound technologies and sound frequencies and art are sort of coming together in a way that I don't remember ever seeing before. 
And I don't really know that we would be, especially an institution, an art institution, I don't know that there would have been as much flexibility and sort of open-mindedness around this idea mm -hmm. if it wasn't for this thing that we all had to do, which is pivot. Yeah. So. Well, you know, another institution nearby and someone I've had on this podcast before, um, or he, when he was director, he no longer is, uh, is the New York Public Library, which, you know, mm -hmm. obviously was hit hard by, by the pandemic, but they were already pivoting mm -hmm. before that, right? I yep. mean, Jeffrey was part of the lead on mm -hmm. the Friday night, clubhouse thing which yep. no one i mean if you're worried no. about having music in a museum yeah <laughs> imagine having clubhouse right. music in a library in a library <laughs> like whoa yeah. but like that's exactly what he did and i love the new york museum of art i mm -hmm. think i grew up with it um i did the gift and talented program when i was a kid and one of the treats of doing that program was going to the museum on weekdays mm -hmm. and saturdays right and doing crazy fun stuff Mm -hmm. And I find for the museum of that size, it's mm -hmm. a really cool space because you have all the aspects. It's like the Met in miniature, right? Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. have all those different aspects. You have contemporary art. You have uh, you know exhibits that come in and out as well. You mm -hmm. have uh, landscape portraiture. You have the mm -hmm. Tibetan collection. And you have all these interesting things that you can build content around, mm -hmm. right? And get people interested as well as incorporating new material and other mm -hmm. ways of using that space that aren't just like, you know, some kind of person throwing a benefit in there, right? Kind of thing, right? Like opening yeah. up that space to other experiences um, is just, I think, going to be so important for keeping the museum not alive. I think it'll always have money. In fact, it could always mm -hmm. sell. It could always sell its stuff. You know what they did. In Absolutely. You know what they did in Detroit, right? I mean, I'm so glad that our mm -hmm. museum isn't owned by the city because. If the city ever fell on hard times, I wouldn't want the question to be, do we have to sell the, the Rothko, right? Mm -hmm, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Which happened to Detroit. I know. Um, oh, that was such a, that was such a so weird sad. thing to watch. Um, yeah. But the beauty of the Newark Museum, I'm mean, sorry, the, the challenge of the Newark Museum will be relevancy, right? Mm -hmm. In a modern age. And yep. I think it has all the tools to succeed. I just don't, I, I want, and I want the institution itself to like embrace that and see that. And, and not that they aren't, I'm just, I'm just mm -hmm. being, I'm just saying my hopes. I'm not saying that that's not a critique or anything. Um, I agree with yeah. you. I mean, I think it's really important. Like the museum, I mean, the, the library, the Newark Public Library um, had no choice, right? But to evolve because technology, you know, mm. you went from when, when I was a kid, if I wanted to read a book, you, you know, you either had to buy the book, borrow the book, or go to the library and take out the book. And I spent a lot of time in libraries as a kid because I liked to read. I was very really curious. I always wanted to know something different. And I happened to grow up where I could walk to, you know, the public library. So I spent a lot of time there. You know, nowadays, no kids don't go to the library like they used to and just pick up a book. Yeah, they may. They may. But a lot of kids are, you know, they're doing ebooks. I mean, even their studies, everything is virtual. Everything is, you know, on your tablet. Everything is on your Chromebook. You know, that's just what it is. So it made sense that in a lot of ways that the library was considering what else. Okay, we're transitioning to incorporate our e, our e library where, you know, but what else can we do to revive 
you know, the library, to make people want to come into the library, to draw them in perhaps with, you know, house music night. (laughs) But then once they see this magnificent building and they see all of the different things that we offer here that we, we, you can take out, you know, you can rent eBooks, you can use the computer, you can, um, you know, rent movies. There's so many, so many things. And not to mention all of the historical archives that, that are actually physical archives, um, I think that that was a really smart move, and I, I believe that the Newark Museum, in a, in a similar vein, is understanding that in order to, I agree with you, it's not about surviving. Um, it's more about providing a uh, an amenity. I mean, that's really the best word that I can use, but providing a service to the community in a way that it's not about relevancy. It's about appreciation in a way in which you can be truly what you are, which is an institution that is promoting curiosity, that is promoting higher learning, that is promoting the idea of exploring the world without having to actually get on a plane or get into your car to do it. I mean, that's to me sort of what what museums and libraries um, begin to to do for people. And, you know, a lot of people don't have the means to travel to Tibet, but they can go to the museum and check out this incredible exhibit and, and feel as if you were actually in Tibet. And, you know, in addition to those collections being there, uh, I think having programming that draws people in, and oftentimes that is more contemporary ideas and you know things in which in, in things that engage people such as musical performance dance performance or dance parties i think that's a great way to draw people in and then once you have them there then they get to you know go wild and explore and most times when people see the museum for the first time i've heard many people be like how come i've never been here before yeah that it's so weird because like as bad as the 90s could could be in newark in terms of just mm-hmm. deprivation, there were interesting programs going on that have since disappeared that I think were mm. really great exposure programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- either because of funding cuts or just redirection of resources or whatever have gone mm-hmm. away. And one of those was, I think, a lot more in having students go to the museum. And hard, mm-hmm. part of the problem was, I, remember, I, I still remember a time where you weren't as concerned. I, I was a high school teacher for two mm-hmm, years, mm-hmm. right? And you weren't as concerned mm-hmm. about wasting a day mm-hmm. going to a museum. You would never even use that word, right? Wasting right. a day, <laughs> right? Because like it was like there was like you, you as a, it, it was reasonable to expect whatever grade you were in that there mm-hmm. would be at least one trip to the Liberty Science Center, mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. trip to the New York Museum, and then at, by '97, one trip to NJ Pack. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are like guaranteed. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's kind of disappeared. I mean, obviously we're in a pandemic, but even before that, like, you know, are there, I wonder if there's still these kind of cultural touchstones. I mean, that's my biggest fear. This is like bigger than Newark. My biggest fear um, in a modern age is, particularly in a postmodern contemporary age, is the loss mm-hmm. of cultural touchstones. Mm-hmm. The, the more, like, the, the way the internet has a way of niching us right and putting us into these boxes either because of the algorithm or just because of ourselves mm-hmm. right we, we only consume like if we're given the choice we'll only consume what we want to consume mm-hmm. um 
I always get afraid that like maybe that's also happening to kids in Newark who maybe are not getting the same kind of broader worldview. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not what's going on. But I always get afraid of that. I think that's a legitimate fear. I yeah. think that's I think that's across the board. I don't think it's just kids. I yeah. think it's happening to adults too. I oh, think yeah. we're yeah. kind of living in this sort of like world within a world almost where you can curate it however you want it and you can do as much or as little as you want to. I mean, I'm always amazed when I meet an adult, especially in Newark, like that's never been to New York City. But mm. that's real. Oh, like, yeah. There are oh, people yeah. that have never been to, I mean, I it, for me, that's just like, I can't even fathom how well, can you look and see the Empire State Building or, you know, see yeah. the Freedom Tower and not be curious to go over there? But the truth is, is that if you don't have a reason mm-hmm. to go and it, there's no like real prompt and maybe it's expensive for you or, or maybe it's scary to you or maybe you're just like not interested. Like you said, like people now can curate their life in a way that we couldn't before you know, in the past, it was like, okay, this is what, you know, you get exposed to these different things through school, through your network, etc. And you either take it or you leave it. And now you don't have to even like, you don't even have to be exposed to anything that you don't want to anymore. You can just like, be at home with your device, you know, with your computer and kind of curate your entire world. And that's pretty much it. You know, I'm actually gonna bring up a third rail of a subject. I think this will be an interesting conversation. Um, I think, so here's the interesting thing. Do you think the fight against the idea of a canon is a good thing or a bad thing? Because I feel like we're kind of touching on this a little bit, at least culturally, right? You mean like a canon of work, like a body of work? Yeah, oh, no, yeah sorry. Yeah, obviously, you can use the word canon just generally. But I mean the sense that there's like, like obviously, there's the, uh, the concept of a Western canon, which has been challenged right. and mm-hmm. probably rightly so. Right. But... I, I keep wondering what are we replacing it with? Like, can we still conceptualize um, an, an essential body of work? Maybe mm-hmm, it looks different mm-hmm. than what it did 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. But like, do you think it's, because I wonder if that's an interesting counter to the niche problem is like, there's still an expectation that if you walk away from school, everyone will at least know this particular work. A good example I just want to bring up mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. how lost Dr. King's I have a or how many students are lost by Dr. King's I have a dream speech because Mm -hmm. it was doing something very particular I mean people still understand that they get the idea but what they don't Mm -hmm. catch are the reference points Mm -hmm. and it's almost a meaningless speech for that very reason Mm. because he was doing something very particular in that speech that I think is Mm -hmm. lost on a lot of us now because we don't have those lines, right? It's Mm. almost as if no one's like, it's like you're you're making Seinfeld references and no one's seen the show, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just see your thoughts on like that, on that kind of stuff. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is like one of those subjects that is really interesting, particularly in this time when we are re-examining everything right and we're looking at systems that have been in play and who gets to decide what is the dominant narrative to human history to civilization to you know all these concepts about what is valued and what is not and when i was in school and i was studying ethnomusicology one of the questions was like why is there a difference between musicology and ethnomusicology and it's really simple musicology is the study of western music and within that is a canon and a body of work that 
includes all the, the you know, the people that you would imagine, right? It's the Mozart, it's the Beethoven. Um, but ethnomusicology is everything else. It's the classical music of India. It's the classical music, you know, of uh, Portugal. It's the Moanas of Kabvid. It's the, you know, uh, work songs and you know, old Negro spirituals from the United States. Um, so even within what could be considered a Western world, what's considered ethno and what's considered, you know, ethnomusicology and what's considered musicology is like divided by this, what I believe is a very um, bias, a cultural bias. It's a bias that says, okay, this has more value than this. And for me, that's not, um, I, I don't believe that that's the way that it should be because uh, I think who defines what's important in a culture are the people that are in that culture. And, you know, who's to say that Beethoven is, is you know, any more brilliant than any person, really? I mean, you know, you could, we could, you know, go on and on, and on but like Robert Johnson, for example, you know, father of blues, who's to say that, you know, Beethoven is, is more of a genius um, because the notes seem more complicated or because it was written down. You know, how do we decide those things? But to your point, I do think that uh, a, a canon and a body of work in any particular discipline is important as a reference point for uh, just like a basic sort of language that we can all agree to. Um, does that canon body of work need to change? Yes, I, I think it does. I think there needs to be a different value system placed on what is an important, say, for example, we're, you know, we're in the United States, what's the, who are the important um, artists uh, that need to be recognized in the canon of, you know, American visual arts? Does that need to change? Yes. And actually, it is changing, right? And you know, I think some of the, the art that we used to see as being uh, not having any value, for example, street art. For, mm. for many, many years, people thought street art was just, you know, graffiti. It was just <laughs> vandalism. It was just, you know, a bunch and, of kids. Yeah. And then comes Jean-Michel Basquiat and, exactly. <laughs> and uh, Keith Haring. <laughs> exactly. And now you have, you know hip-hop art yeah. selling for millions of dollars you know of christie's and sotheby's that are doing these major exhibits yeah. and that took about 35 40 years to happen but it did actually change and so now a kid that is growing up if they're studying art history american art history will learn about those artists in a way that when i was growing up i didn't uh, that was not considered to be you know high art um so to answer your question and you know in a very sort of fine way i think that there is an importance in having a canon because it establishes a what what is deemed to be an important part of the cultural fabric of a particular society but i think that in deciding who belongs in that canon that the systems that are used to place value on those works need to be broadened and it needs to not just be seen through the lens of you know a rich white man um, and seen by the society as a whole, you know, the society as a whole. I mean, there's some songs that are beloved mm. to the American public, regardless of what your background is, but that are not considered to be high art, but they're still beloved. And I think that that is an important marker when you're considering 
what should be a part of the canyon canon. And now, of course, you know, you have what is a what is a genius pro- project. And again, that's all subjective, right? Because some people look at a work of like ja- Jackson Pollock, Jackson Pollock, and say, "Oh my God, that's." amazing you know his work is like incredible and then other people look at it and go oh yeah it just looks like he just threw a bunch of paint on a wall and like that's Mm -hmm. it so you know it's one of those things where i feel that it's important to get a a broader sort of cross-section of where the value is in a particular work and all of that is decided by powers that be and not necessarily by the people or the majority of the people yeah but i think you were hinting at this because i think what the, the 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 way out of that problem is like all genius is contextual, mm-hmm. like there 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 is no such thing as absolute genius, like like right. a, like abstract from from anything, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and not to pick an abstract artist as an example, haha pun, but mm-hmm. like Jackson Pollock is a genius not because he threw paint on a canvas, <laughs> but because in the arc of of studio art in the Western tradition, mm-hmm. he was doing something very unique and pushing back against something, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's, but then you could take that philosophy and apply it to almost any other mm-hmm. um, source of art, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to think of genius as just like, oh, this person is a genius because he can take a pianoforte and, and, and write a you know sonata on it um, is missing the, the wider context, right? It's like, well, you just happen to select this thing as like the purest expression of musical art but that's not that itself is an arbitrary choice mm-hmm. um sorry i know that's like really really airy and kind of like no but it makes heady, i mean right? i'm glad you brought it up yeah. because i always think of indian classical music just because indian classical music is so complicated and there you know there yeah. was you know when you're when you're working on something like a phd everything has to be like proven right like mm-hmm. you have to either have a brand new theory or you have to present a theory that you can compare against a theory that already exists and you know in doing that when i was looking at music like indian classical music i was like this music is super complicated i mean extremely comp- trying to notate that you're talking about a different a totally different musical scale so how can you really like value that, right? How do you place a, take a Western system mm-hmm. and then use that system to place value on another system? It, it's in, in a lot of ways, you have to kind of allow things to exist as their own genius and not necessarily always compare them against what has been decided as the benchmark of genius you know you really really need to take it as something unique and that stands alone and doesn't need to be compared against what has been deemed to be you know the epitome of musical uh not just not just composition and genius but um permeability right you know it 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 goes beyond that and I, i i think when people are are thinking about all of these things I think that's the most important thing is really taking a look at what the system is used to value that. And if that system is not, um, the word is not fair, but if that system is not comprehensive and is not open-minded, then I think you need to reevaluate the system. Yeah. I mean, it's, you never did a PhD, right? I was working on my PhD you and were. I didn't finish. Got yeah, this, I didn't okay, finish. I, I say, these arguments sound like the kind of thing that would get you in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. and actually the reason why, it's funny because the reason why I opted to not complete my PhD, I finished with my master's, yeah. was because I was so frustrated mm-hmm. at the system. 
I was really, really, really frustrated. It's like, why do I have to pass my language proficiency in French and German if the cultures that I'm studying are primarily, you know, in languages that are not considered, you know, romance languages or not considered or are not European languages? Why can't I do these languages? And it's like, oh, you can do those languages, but you still have, have to, to do, do French uh, and German. Ah, but the department will tell you, ah, Marcy, you forget all the great texts that analyze exactly. these music traditions are written in French and right. German. <laughs> exactly. And then the other argument that really kind of really, really threw me for a loop was this idea that the insider-outsider perspective mm. and that people who are inside of a culture are biased and can't really have an objective analysis of a culture from an ethnomusicological perspective if you are part of that culture. And that infuriated me because I saw several um, pieces of work, dissertations and books and um, ethnographs that had been produced that were analyzing in particular Cape Verdean music that just missed the mark completely. Wait. did not understand certain elements. Wait, someone didn't actually say that to you, did they? No, it, yeah, it, they it, actually it, did. That doesn't even stand on its own terms. Like, because then, like, wait, but, like, the whole, then, any academics, any, literally any academic subject outside of the sciences would not work. Yeah, Right? I because, agree. like, you're, like, mm-hmm. you're saying, like, so, maybe it's, like, unique to the practices of ethnomusicology but then again maybe maybe the discipline has a problem (laughs) but like like the standard is never like you're so like you can obviously make a rhetorical argument that the person is so biased for a particular reason and that that could always hold but to say that that's like a a priori always going to be a problem is flawed at best racist at worst (laughs) i mean like ah Sorry. Yes. That, that was no, amazing you said that. Like that. Wow. <laughs> that's exactly why I decided not to complete my PhD. I was like, you know what? I can do more, um, and I can actually have more fun as an ethnomusicologist not completing this PhD than if I spend the next two years of my life literally banging my head against the wall. You know, trying to not just analyze, present, you know, data and talk about certain things. But also, like, the way in which I wanted to present it. Like, I just, for me, I, I was like, why do I have to write a 350-page dissertation when I can make a film and have an accompanying CD that will actually, truly document what it is that I'm trying to say and then have an accompanying, say, 200-page dissert- dissertation? Like, it was like, no, you can't do that. Yeah. And you know what? what's cool about it is that Things have changed. Um, you know, when I when I left school, it was two thousand eight, almost two thousand nine, and um, things have changed drastically since then. And I'm I'm very happy to to hear that. And I think that there's been a lot of strides that have been made to dismantle the the as you said the racist systems that were in place that really were not serving the discipline. Yeah. And so you know, it's 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 really cool to see. Um, Sometimes it makes me want to go back and finish. <laughs> I mean, on, on that point, like the video essay um, is an amazing medium that's really evolved, especially particularly in the last five to ten years, yeah. uh, and really kind of ramped up in the last five years. And there's a, these amazing video essays I, I watch on YouTube that are really long, academically rigorous. In fact, one of them, the, one of the people who I watch, her name is Contra, or her, the name of her channel is ContraPoints. 
Um, mm. It's like it's, it has footnotes. Um, oh, how cool! And but it's all done in a visual medium, and it's like mm-hmm. arguments about philosophy in a modern context, mm-hmm. uh, and it's done really well. Like she, like she did an episode on cancel culture, an hour-long video on oh, cancel so culture, cool. right? And like it's like why can't a dissertation be? A video it can have the footnotes it can have all the other sexy stuff you want heck it can have yeah. a tra- it can have a transcript if you really want the written word Absolutely. Well, I, there, there's there's too much of a totem i think around mm-hmm. this is why i had to escape academia myself there's too much of a totem <laughs> yeah no there's too much of a totem around the the procedure itself right. which is it obviously is rigorous and keeps people out but at the same time it may be too big of a filter Mm-hmm. But that's a different mm-hmm. that's, yeah. a, that's a different conversation for a different totally day. a different I mean, like, conversation. We'll go down we'll go down the rabbit hole. Oh my god, for, <laughs> for like an hour uh, on why academia sucks. Um, but I mean, is there anything yeah, else? Yeah. yeah if, is there anything else you want to share before I start wrapping up? I mean, I, f- I feel bad. I don't know if we t- we talked about everything, right? Forza and art and. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about a lot. I mean, yeah. I will say that, like, what I what I would love to just talk about is like. Newark. Like, yeah. Newark is an incredible city. And, like, it's my adopted home. I've been here now for almost 26 years. And I knew that Newark was the place for me from the minute I got here. And I realized that it was a lot like the city that I grew up in. And I, the amount of talent that's in the city in all different types of facets never ceases to amaze me. It never ceases to amaze me. I mean, like when I met you, for example, I was like, who's this guy? I never knew him before. Oh my God, this is this is somebody who's incredibly intelligent, who's fun, who's talented, who's creative, who has all these cool ideas. Oh, and he's from North, like he was born and raised in North. Wow. And that happens all the time. And I think Newark is one of those cities that has been slept on in a lot of ways because people have this sort of collective consciousness, this image and this um, sort of almost brainwashing that has been done uh, in, you know, since the city has experienced such, such hardships following the 1967 rebellion. I um, mean, certainly you brought up the 90s. Uh, yeah. I mean, I moved to Newark in the 90s, so I, I, I know what you're talking about. And um, But I think that even within all of that, the incredible resilience of the city, which I think really is one of the key things that's at the base of creativity, right, is resiliency, the, the ability to turn something into, you know, you're like a little alchemist, you're turning something that could be horrible into something else. I think that um, that's one of the remarkable things about the city. And of course, the great history, mm-hmm. the culture, the, the plethora of different types of people that are in the city and that have been in the city. It, it's, a, it's a really unique place. It has a pulse to it that I can only describe as this fountain of creativity. And it's... Um, I'm like, I, I always find a gem, whether it's a historical fact or, you know, finding out that something was innovated in the city or this person is from the city or this happens in the city. I mean, it just, it really never ceases to amaze me. So when I think about a home for Marcy and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, Forza and that concept, you know, yeah, we have New York City that's right there, which of course is like the whole world in one city. Um, but for what I do, Newark is really, it, it really just fits for for all of those things. And 
I, I feel so blessed to have been welcomed into the fold, into the arts community, into, you know, this great city. And, um, yeah, I'm like so excited about what's going to come next because I, I think that many Norkers have been sort of patiently or not patiently, um, waiting for what was called the renaissance in the 90s and uh, the early 2000s uh, yeah i'm uh debating whether or not to publish it but i've been working on an essay on why the word renaissance should never be used again in newer. <laughs> yes. it's, like, it's like a five-page diatribe it also goes to the history of the word and why it's a problematic word and um you know, I, I feel like one of my friends joked that the essay should just be a picture of the Renaissance Mall. Yeah, oh my, perfect prime example. I know, I know. Sometimes what what a five thousand word essay can be boiled down to a to a one image. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, Power of art, right? Like just take a photograph of that, and it says everything. Yeah, I, I mean, just to get quickly into it, um, and then we'll wrap up. Like the word, just to give it the thesis, the word Renaissance is a problematic term simply because inherently in the term is an idea of chasing after a past and that past may or may not have existed and a good Mm. example is even the term itself that was used around the italian the thing that started occurring in italy beginning in the 1300s um they just papered over the history of their own grandparents and said that sucked Right. Wow. And like, like they didn't produce anything good. They started calling it the dark ages. Right. Mm-hmm. And they were looking back to a past that was generations ago, right? The Roman empire mm-hmm. already a thousand, almost a thousand years ended by that point. And I, I feel like something similar happens when we do the word Renaissance in Newark. It's what are we chasing? Are we chasing mm-hmm. the 1920s? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's great. Are we chasing the 60s? No. I don't think that's great either. Like, like what what is it that we're looking for? And and I think we just box ourselves into a corner. And rather than saying, I understand why we use the word Renaissance. It's easy, and it's a feel good word. But just because it's easy and feel good doesn't mean it doesn't have a darker meaning to it. And that's mm. sort of where I'm going with that. But I'm still working out of my head. I love that actually yeah. because I'm not a fan of looking back. I mean, I I think that when you look. Back, I think you should only be looking back to a good memory. Yeah. Um, I think when you look back, it should only be to either recognize how far you've come or to uh, summon something that was phenomenal that happened. But I think the very concept of a city like Newark looking back, I think we have so much more to look forward to than we have to look back. And that's not to say that there hasn't been greatness and in so many different ways in the city, but I think the best is yet to come. I really do. I think as the city grows and I mean, there's just so many different ways that it can go. And I think that looking back in a lot of ways can be a hindrance because I think people can get caught up, particularly people of our generation can get caught up in the way that it was and what can happen and what couldn't happen and what won't happen and what never happened. And like, who cares? Who cares about that stuff? Like, I'm all about like, what can we do today? What can we create today? Like, I don't know the idea and the concepts of what the, what can't happen in this city. Mm. I, I'm I, that's not something that is entertaining to me or anything that I want to entertain. Like, mm. I am looking at what can we create? How can we show the world the, the the feeling, the very essence, the very frequency and vibration of the city? How can we take that thing that is so unique 
there's no place. I mean, and this is true for every place in the world. There's no place like another place. There just isn't. Mm -hmm. There's no, I've never been to a city that I'm like, oh yeah, this feels like Newark. No, I haven't. There's elements. Like I've been certain places. I'm like, oh, I've been to Detroit. And I'm like, oh, this kind of reminds me of Newark, but not, no, it actually doesn't. And so I think that we are in a very, very unique position Almost as if it's not that the the slate has been wiped clean because it has not. Um, But I do think that it's almost as if we put on a new lens on the city. Right. Um, You know, we we just got a new lens and we're putting on the new lens. And now we're going to bring that lens into focus. And it's entirely up to us what we're going to focus on and what we're going to show the world who we are. Are we going to show that we're, you know, the Nork of 1967 or 1997 or are we going to show that we are the Nork that has learned and I, mm. from all of those experiences? And, like, I think that this past year, um, just to kind of, like, wrap this up in a bow, I think is a phenomenal example of exactly what I'm saying. You know, when all of the social um, movements and protests broke out after the murder of George Floyd, everybody was, like, looking at Nork on edge, you know, people were like clutching their pearls and like biting their nails and like waiting for Nork to explode, right? Because it was <laughs> like everybody was thinking about 1967 and everybody was just waiting to see if scary Nork was going to, you know, self destruct once again because that's how those people are. And I was so proud of our city. I was so proud of our leadership. And, and, and across the board, I mean, from our mayor to our, you know, community leaders, to our parents, to students, to everybody, to, to artists and individuals, how Nork actually showed what it looks like when we've learned from the past and we've actually made significant changes within the city so that we didn't have a George Floyd situation in our city. That we, you know, not to say that there's not problems, there are definitely deep problems in our city, but I think that we've grown from the place that we were in 1967. And I think that that is a testament, again, to the resiliency of this city and to the beauty of the people and this frequency that I feel here, which is this real undercurrent of love for the city and wanting to see Nork win. I think we all want to see Nork win. And I'm excited. I'm really excited about, you know, what what we can do with this as we focus our lens, you know, what we're going to focus on and what we're going to show to the world, because I think we have a lot to offer. And for a a relatively small city, I think we pack we pack a punch. And uh, I think, you know, the more people that get to see that, the better. So I really think you answered my last question, which is what are you excited for in Newark? I mean, feel oh, free wow. to expound on that more because <laughs> you literally use the word excited and in Newark. So. Wow. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I think that's really it. I mean, what yeah. I, that that is what I'm excited about. I'm excited to see what we're going to create in this moment. I'm excited yeah. to see new venues pop up. I'm excited to see, you know, live music. I'm excited to see what kind of festivals will grow. Mm. I'm excited to see how corporations that, come to the city will uh, take the idea of corporate responsibility and not just corporate responsibility, but actually being a part of the city's landscape, of the cultural landscape of the Mm -hmm. city. I'm excited to see how everything that happened in 2020 influences the ways in which all these different systems that are at work, you know, will step into the next era as we open up like what is that going to look like what are we going to do how are we going to create that together you know how are we going to be able to to really together 
create the city that we want because I think that, you know, you as a, as a kid that grew up here and, you know, you talked about the different things that you were excited about being a kid. I, I, I want to see, you know, 20 years from now, the kid that is growing up right now and kind of how they benefit from whatever happens and whatever we create. And, you know, when they say, oh, wow, you know, like I went to the Newark Arts Festival when I was 10 and I, you know, like hand painted an animodule or, you know, I went to the Newark Museum and, you know, I learned how to, uh, you know, make a 3D print, you know, use a 3D printing machine or, I went down to the library and I saw all of these incredible archives of, you know, what has happened in this city since, you know, the 1600s. I mean, yeah, that's that's really what I'm excited about. And I'm glad that I can be, you know, play some small role in that. Yeah, that's I mean, that's so beautiful. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I follow that up, but um, I guess what I'm excited for is some news. Um, so by the time this episode uh comes out this will already be public knowledge and marcy already knows this because she was deeply involved in this <laughs> uh, but i'm going to be joining the board of newark arts um Yay! which is uh i can't tell you i got a call from marcy about three months ago now mm-hmm. i think it was around, or it was after accept, it was after i accepted palkus um uh-huh. so it's about two months ago so yeah it was in december it was december yeah so i uh, i was blown away i did not know there was an opening i did not even know i was being considered and um i was so surprised um it's just i, I I'm, I'm excited for it because i think to have a hand in creating fostering nurturing providing the space for art in its many forms is something that I think a lot of people wish they could do, but are not given the opportunity to. And I'm so glad Mm -hmm. to be part of that, um, in creating what I, what I like to call an ecosystem. Um, Mm. right. And I'm so excited for that. We're very excited to have you. I just, I really am so thrilled to have somebody who, I hate to use this because it sounds so trite, but like who gets it, who gets it, who understands the intricacies of the city, who, you know, was educated here, who has left here, who has seen the way things are other places, you know, and still chose to come back to the city. I think that's really powerful, Manny. And what you can bring in helping to shape, as you said, and influence the way that arts in this city is, um, viewed and consumed and presented and enjoyed is incredibly powerful and i'm just so so happy that you accepted the the uh, nomination (laughs) and that you'll be joining us because i think that your voice is really important and has a lot of value and i think that children that are growing up in nork need to see how important their voice is and you represent that you're one of those kids that grew up here and who now is able to bring all of your talents to the city that you're from and make a difference and you know the hope is that some kid who's growing up you know is in like second grade or third grade is is now going to see that you know i can actually stay in my city if i want to i don't have to like move to new york or boston or detroit or la or wherever 
you know, Miami. I, I can I can do it here. Yeah, or you can come back. Yes. <laughs> I mean, oh, God, that's, that's an episode I've been trying to do several times. It's just like what makes people not want to come back, which I think is the, mm-hmm. that's the next issue. Um, on that sad note, though. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's uh, emotional. Yeah. Uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Marcy DePina. Um, this is Manny Antunes, host and producer of the Potted Market podcast, editing and sound engineering by Bob Frey's. Podcast and logo design provided by Robert Conti. Additional creative input by Samantha Gateas. We have a Patreon, which you can find on our website if you'd like to support the podcast. Uh, if you have a subject you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, please email podmarket at gmail.com or contact the pod through social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And so I'm going to end with a quote um, in sort of in celebration of Marcy a little bit. Um, not Cape Verdean. Unfortunately, I don't have any Cape Verdean books on me. Um, but I have uh, Machado de Assis, who's uh, this famous Brazilian writer. Um he was of mixed race. He wrote in the 19th century and was probably al- after Alexander Dumas, the most read mixed race person in the 19th century. Um, he uh, was a darling of the academy um, in um, not in Brazil but also in Europe. And um, unfortunately, his work has never made it into America as bigly or as greatly. Okay, if you said bigly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I know. Oh my God. Um, but uh, Mashadu Desis, he um, he's he just got a translation by a young um, woman who uh, wrote her thesis, I believe, or her thesis is this translation, which is fascinating. And this mm. book is basically deeply weird and postmodern. It's it's called the Posthumous Memoirs of Braz Kubas, who's mm-hmm. this sort of uh, guy who is writing from the grave about this life that he lived and all these regrets. And the and the different chapters jump around in his life, but they also like are weird commentaries on things. So this quote I have here is just him addressing a critic who he just stops in the middle of the book and is just like, I I just want to address this one critic. (laughs) Um, So I'm going to read this quote. Uh, To a critic, my dear critic, some pages ago upon saying that I was 50 years old, I added, you already have noticed that my style is no longer so nimble as its first days. You may find this incomprehensible given my present state, but I would call to your attention the subtlety of my remark. I do not mean that I am older now than when I began the book. Death does not age one. What I do mean is that even at every stage of the narration of my life, I experience the corresponding sensations. So help me God, I have to explain everything. Thank you.